You're listening to an episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is 8 p.m. on Thursday, February 4th, 2021. We're joined today by a special guest, Professor Michael McGill from Penn State Dickinson Law. Professor McGill teaches torts, or as he sometimes calls it, driver's ed, which most of us took last semester. Welcome, Professor. Today's regular panel is Shenley Kent, Seth Trott, Joanne Fernando, Courtney Beekler, and Nicole Singer. And we'd like to start things off with a hard question. Which cartoon character do you wish was real? Let's start with Shenley. Um, Klaus from American Dad. Oh, I would have to go with Cosmo and Wanda from the Fairly Odd Parents. Nikki? Um, I would have to go with everyone on Bob's Burgers because they're all amazing. Uh, Seth? Uh, I'll go with Elmer Fudd. And Joanne? Donkey. Shrek. Donkey from Shrek. All right. And Professor McGill? Um, I gave a lot of thought about this. I haven't written about it yet. Um, there were two of them, but, and then they have something in common. Um, Snoopy edged out Scooby-Doo. All right. I, I like Snoopy. I like his happy dance. I like his, um, well, his positive attitude. I like his loyalty. And I like that he, uh, he really gets at Lucy whenever she tries to put him down. I'm Tony Fernando, and I choose Ahsoka Tano from Star Wars, The Clone Wars. While supplies last, you can still get a free Law Review Squared sticker by sending your mailing address to lexclava at gmail.com. That's L-E-X-C-L-A-V-A at gmail.com. We'll ship anywhere, even if you're overseas. And finally, a reminder that opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State. Dickinson Law, the panelists present, former or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. And now I'll turn the episode over to Seth. So the article we're discussing today is by uh, Arturus Professor Michael McGill from Penn State Dickinson Law, and it's titled Teaching Law Day, a Senior Moment. I especially enjoyed this article because it's essentially two articles in one. You have uh, the written article, but then there's this additional invisible article um, kind of written between the lines about the impact of rhetoric on public perception, uh, to which Professor McGill, he, he frames the unfiltered truth as the ultimate protagonist in the story and sort of the strongest defense against the eroding of our most necessary societal institutions, which in this case, or in this article, is the jury. But uh, instead of me summarizing the article as would usually happen, I'll just turn it over to Professor McGill to uh, give us a quick overview of how he once spent his law day. I like participating in law day. I participated in law day with all kinds of groups of kids and adults. I think it's part of our, our civic duty. I think it's part of our legal duty. I did it when I was practicing. I have done it since I've been teaching. The article came to me basically because I was asked to go ahead and be a speaker at a program at a senior citizen home here in Carlisle. And I talked to the uh, arts, the activities director there just to see what, what, would the, what would the residents like. And she threw a few ideas out, but one of them she talked about was learning more, not just about what lawyers do, but about the intricacies of the jury system. So what I decided to do, especially because of the population I was talking to was to use the McDonald's hot coffee case. And because of the misperceptions that I think the public has about what that case was really all about. So I, I did a brief presentation in terms of lawyers, what we do, what type of cases we handle, et cetera, the various aspects of lawyering. But then I just started polling them in terms of what they thought about or what they had heard about this case. 
and there were a real lot of negative feelings about it. And I said, well, let's do this then. I want you all to serve as the jurors in the case, and you're going to have to decide this based on the actual evidence of the case itself. My goal, frankly, Seth, was just, just like in class, I want to engage the people I'm talking with. And so I want them to talk more than me. So to me, it was part of going ahead and allowing people to not just question me, but frankly, to question themselves. So we'll move on to some questions for you, if you don't mind. Um, to start I'm, I'm, open to whatever, I'm open to whatever questions you have. Absolutely. All right. To start the discussion generally, uh, this article was published in the Florida-based Stetson Journal of Advocacy in the Law. Um, so when you're authoring an article, how do you decide what law reviews are submitted to for publication? Do you look at the focus of the journal or, or are there certain factors that you pay attention to? See, see that, that's a question I can bounce back to you, but I won't because it's sort of like, how do you choose what law school you're going to go to? Um, law reviews like law schools have rankings. And part of being in the academy, I found out was essentially, um, you know, if you, if you can get into the top journals, you should go with the top journals because that's something that not only school takes pride in, but that advances you in your career and that advances you along the tenure track itself. Um, I've been a believer all along of looking at the particular journal and what the journal is known for. Uh, the thing that attracted me to Stetson was that, and you might have noticed this on the cover page, this was the first online law review that was designed to actually be read online. This is when online law reviews were first kicking things off. And I wanted to get in on it. And I sensed that there would be more and more of a trend to online law reviews, and there has been. Um, so this was their first edition of their online law review, and they offered me the lead article, and I was attracted to it because of, uh, because of those reasons. And in addition to that, specifically, this is about advocacy, and having been a trial lawyer, and this piece really designed to display advocacy to the extent of how people react in a pseudo- type of courtroom situation. I thought it was appropriate. You touched this a little bit in your introduction, but do you see events like Law Day as being part of your responsibility as a professor or more generally as part of your responsibility as a lawyer? And having given these programs to small kids and up to senior citizens, are, are certain groups more receptive to learning about the law? Tony, I don't separate myself out from being a, being a lawyer and a law professor. I have not given up my law degree. I'm very proud that I have it. I'm proud of the work that I did in the past before I came into the classroom itself. So to me, there is no separation between the two. I think it's part of, as I mentioned early on, our professional responsibility, our civic responsibility to go ahead and offer what we can to the public. And as lawyers, I think it's important to go ahead and um, address ourselves to what could be misunderstandings or misconceptions of the law and to, to do our part in making sure that people understand how the legal system is supposed to work and where there are shortcomings. So I've, I've prided myself in getting involved in the Law Day activities and getting involved with different sectors. And depending on the group that I'm addressing, I, I use different activities. So tort reform is a topic that we haven't yet discussed on this podcast. Um, we haven't really discussed it 
in any classes, I think, other than yours. Um, so what are some of the arguments behind tort reform and, and the debate and how might reforming the tort system impact the role of our courts in the justice system? You know, the, the answer to that is the is in two words, and it's two words that you're paying for three years of law school. You know what those two words are, Seth? I don't think so. Anybody know what those two words are? You're going to hear them throughout three years of law school. It depends. Exactly, Courtney. Yeah. I mean, like we learned in torts, you know, you change the facts, you change the result. And torts is a very fact-based case, of course, excuse me, to the extent that sometimes you think you're more in fact school than you are in law school. So the answer depends on what you think is fair, okay? Um, I mean, I, I, I'll tell you the position the two sides take on this. Um, in terms of the so-called tort reformers, and when you hear the word reform, depending on where you're coming from, that can sound like a very positive type of image. The folks who are generally in favor of tort reform are insurance companies, corporations, small businesses, product manufacturers, municipalities, professional service providers. The people who are against tort reform tend to be, well, frankly, trial lawyers, but also consumer rights advocates. So for those that want to see tort reform, they, they'll make a number of arguments, and some of them are, can be fairly convincing. Um, they say that basically it'll ensure consistent and predictable results in damages awards. They say that it will lower insurance costs and it will lower product costs for the public. They say that it will eliminate double recovery in instances where the plaintiff has insurance. Um, a rule that you'll learn about depending on what courses you take, I, I teach this rule in remedies, is called the collateral source rule. Collateral source rule is if you buy your own insurance, you can keep the proceeds from that insurance as well as the damages you get from the defendant. Some people say that's a double recovery. On the other hand, you've been paying for the insurance itself. So other people say, why shouldn't you get the benefits of both? So tort reformers say, count what you get from insurance against the award you would otherwise receive. Some people say that it's fairer because it ensures that funds are available to later plaintiffs who sue, where if, if you provide too much to the earlier plaintiffs, the defendant might wind up running out of funds. People say it will reduce the court burden. It will reduce the time and the cost of the court system itself. People say it will encourage product innovation. Others will say that it produces fairer results because, for example, we talked about this in torts, contrasting joint and several liability to several liability. The tort reformers are for several liability. Several liability means each of the respective defendants only pays their share and nothing more than that. In addition to that, um, a lot of the controversy centers around punitive damages. Punitive damages, and again, I, I teach this in remedies, it's not meant to make somebody whole. But like the word sounds, it's punishment. And tort reform is said to hold down punitive damages. Tort reform also limits attorney's fees. And there's a concern, basically, and I mentioned this in the article, of um, people who win the so-called litigation lottery, that it basically there are some greedy plaintiffs out there. So that's that's what you hear from the, the tort reformers. Now, on the tort deformers, again, 
the consumer rights advocates and the trial lawyers, they'll say that um, it helps to police consumer product safety. It helps to police innovation. It lowers injuries. It makes, it makes the defendants accountable. In terms of insurance costs, there's a question as to whether or not insurance costs go up because of litigation or, frankly, because insurance companies have made some bad investments with their premiums over the years. They say that it's the, uh, it's the court's job to assess things on a case-by-case basis. That's the torts is generally the province of uh, the judiciary. Yes, there are some large verdicts. They're pretty rare. And if there are large verdicts, the court gets to review them. The trial court can order what's called a remediator to lower the award, or it goes through the appellate court system. With tort reform, it leaves plaintiffs um, not fully compensated. It leaves the defendant without an incentive to basically improve on its policies. And essentially what it can mean is that if a defendant only pays for compensatory damages and not punitive damages, they can factor that into the cost of doing business. And as a result, they can basically say, well, cost-benefit analysis, it's, it's worth paying out the damages so long as we don't have to pay more. You might remember that when I shared with you that case with the Ford Motor Company and the cost-benefit analysis that they went through. So these, these are the pros and cons that come up. And it's led, frankly, the reformers have had the best of it in terms of the type of um, uh, legislative responses. It occurs to me as you're talking, um, you know, tort reform, and, and you mentioned some people hear that, they hear reform, and they think that that's kind of automatically positive. Are there... A lot of things when they're deciding law and how law is supposed to work where the labels that people are choosing to put on the different sizes end up influencing the debate. Um, you know, so we have tort reform or, or not tort reform or something we've talked about on another podcast was, you know, pro-choice versus pro-life. I mean, does that end up influencing judges that we hope are or, and legislatures that we hope are kind of impartial? I, you know, I think that maybe not on a conscious level, Tony, but maybe on a subconscious level, I think, I think the way that you label things are important. And I say that because I think about, I mean, even, even to the extent of how I titled this article. And I say that because I remember as my parents were aging, you know, occasionally they would just blank out on something. And of course they'd kind of joke that they were going through a senior moment. Well, here I was going to a nursing home. And I was talking to seniors. So I, I labeled it a senior moment. Um, I think about it in other areas. I mean, I'll give you an example of this. And, and, and a, lot, a lot goes into labeling things. Um, th- this, is, this is not on point with the topic you're asking about, but with the controversy in terms of um, whether or not you want to call it a woman's choice or whether or not you want to call it a right to life. When and I'm not asking anyone to weigh in on this, but I'll suggest to you that when one side picked this, the phrase of right to life, it's like, well, gee, how's anyone going to disagree with that? So the way we label things, I think, can be very influential on how people react to whatever it is that follows. Anyone else have any questions they want to introduce at all? If not, I have another one, but. I have one. Um, hi, Professor Mobile. It's good to see you. Hi, Shanley. 
Um, so as I was reading this, I just kept kind of thinking about, uh, you know, I, I've run an exercise um, as far as them um, raising their hand and then as you can't get more back, people put their hands down. And they already had kind of like these preconceived notions about the case. And, you know, it was kind of disparaging when they started. Like, who was after that? She went this, she went that. And I just kind of wanted to kind of get your take on, do you think it's possible to have a, a serious impartial jury? Because people already come with all these preconceived notions or they already have like some type of um, maybe exposure to cases. And especially now with how we're living in like a 24 hour news cycle, is it, is it possible to have an impartial jury? Yeah, and, and you know, Shunley, I think it's I think it's difficult because nobody lives on an island. And people are connected. And as you say, you know, you have the 24-7 news cycle as far as that. Um, what, what I, you know, I, I did not select this group as the people to, to be the jury in this case. In other words, I didn't know anything about their backgrounds. When I was a litigator, I would have the jury information and I know, I know certain things about the folks who could sit on the jury. And what lawyers do really is a lawyer, and, and this is a misconception, I think, among a lot of people, lawyers do not pick a jury. What you do is you don't select a jury, you deselect a jury. Each side, each attorney has a certain number of strikes they can use to eliminate jurors who they don't want to serve. And so I would look for those jurors that, based on their biographical information that was supplied to the court, based on the question and answer I would go through with them, those would be people that I would use my, they're called peremptory challenges to get off of the jury panel. My opponent would do the same thing against the jurors that, they, that he or she thought were friendly to me. And what you wind up with in the middle are the jurors. It's kind of like the mushy middle. They're not the people I wanted, but I got rid of the people I didn't want. And my opponent got rid of the people that she didn't want to. But to suggest that people have not formed an opinion, um, that's rough, especially because of the publicity that's given to cases. I say one takeaway from this that, um, is kind of that you can still have faith in the jury system because people will um, consider the evidence and then come to the correct conclusion, even if they did have a pre-existing opinion, right? Well, Tony, that's the underlying hope, because if they don't, then the whole system collapses like a house of cards. And I'll suggest to you, if you've, if you've talked to any of the, the 2L students or any of the 3L students that have taken the course in evidence, there are a few um, preconceptions that I kind of blow up in class. And uh, I mean, to the extent that, I mean, I, I'll ask you one of those questions now. And if you take evidence, you'll hear me ask the same question. So you can give it away to your classmates or you cannot give it away to your classmates. Quick polling among you. If you were a litigator in the case, how many of you would want a fair and impartial jury? Hands? I say that's what I believe too. Either, either that or you didn't want to answer. You know, the, the, you always hear in the news, oh yeah, the lawyers get up and say, I want a fair and impartial jury. I never wanted a fair and impartial jury. I wanted a jury that was the most partial to me as possible. But I didn't have a chance to select them. I was hoping that my opponent would not deselect the ones 
that I thought should be on the jury panel. So that's one of the myths that we blow up in the evidence class, along with some others. To your point, Tony, you know, jurors have taken an oath. They have sworn that they're only going to consider the evidence presented to them. Who knows if they really do? I think I mentioned to you in torts, you know, once all the evidence is in, once the judge has given them instructions, they go back in the jury room and they close the door. And as I say, it's it's the making of justice is similar to the making of sausage. We we trust the process. We hope it's not adulterated. And uh, we don't know what they're doing back there. But if they've taken this oath, we believe that they are following the oath. If we did not have that belief, then the system that in part we fought a revolution to have a jury system really is meaningless. I, I have a follow up um, branching off of Shanley's question. I, I heard of this case um, a long time ago. And um, when I was looking to start law school, um, I had a lot of people back home in Wisconsin who were very supportive, but they also, in general, don't really trust lawyers and think litigation is an extravagant thing in most cases. And they would take the the hot coffee case as an example and just say, oh, this is just extra. Um, lawyers are just trying to make as much money as they can off of corporations and hardworking people and whatnot. Um, do you find that, did you find that this case, when you talk about it, had a larger impact on how litigation is viewed in general? Did you have to have a broader conversation about, um, did you have to have a broader conversation about, you know, why the, um, why these people went to court and why they, um, uh, and why they put themselves through this, given the backlash and the public, um, the public media um, pushback uh, to make this into kind of a farcical case. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, again, you read the headline and if you don't delve into the facts, you get really upset about it. I mean, how the heck can a woman who spills coffee on herself get a multi-million dollar verdict? And for most people, that's where it started and that's where it stopped. So, you know, what I, what I, tell people when I go to these law day presentations is I tell them that the job of a lawyer, frankly, is to be a problem solver, not a problem creator. And that essentially what happens is you take the facts as they are and you do the best of the, with the facts that actually wind up existing. I saw my job as a litigator, not a whole lot different, frankly, than I see my job um, as your law professor. My job as your law professor is to hopefully educate you in a way that you understand the materials and so that you can explain them to somebody else. When I was, when I was litigating cases, I felt like I was the teacher to the jury and I would explain things to them in a way so that they would understand it. And the more that they could understand it, the better chance they would come back with a verdict for my client. So to a certain extent, as as I would watch the jury during the presentation of the case, and I would watch their reactions to the evidence, I do the same thing in the classroom when I watch how you guys react. Now, fortunately, nobody's been rolling their eyes, but 
you know, some, sometimes people will nod their heads. Sometimes they'll shake their heads. Sometimes even like Courtney, she'll smile. You know, I, I, I try to gauge what the reactions are to see if people are understanding or not. Um, you know, during the time of um, during the time of COVID, it's a bit more difficult when you're in the classroom because you're masked and it's hard to read people. You know, the eyes can only tell you so much. Actually teaching online, I get a better idea as to how people are reacting because at least I could see you. Even though I can't, we cannot force anyone to turn on their video. So if you just put a picture up there, I have no idea how you're reacting to things. So to me, Nicole, just to give you a sh the, the briefest answer now that I've rambled on to how to deal with people who react just like you know the folks you knew in Wisconsin is, but do you know what really took place? We were on a trip four years ago and we were with a, uh, a Canadian couple. The guy was a doctor. And when he found out I was a lawyer, he immediately started blasting me with the McDonald's hot coffee case. And, and so I said to him, I said, tell me the facts of the case. He didn't know him. He only knew she spilled coffee on herself. I said, well, let me, let me, let me tell you something about it and ask you if it changes your opinion. And it was much like what happened at the, uh, at the senior living home, it was like, well, how come I didn't know that? And my answer was, well, did you try to know that? Courtney, you had a question? I did. So outside of this article itself, um, and I'm not sure that we've mentioned it yet. So to my mom and dad listening, uh, Law Day is the celebration of the rule of law, and it's usually on May 1st. Um, so my question is, would you say that this is your most memorable or most enjoyable law day experience? Or is there something that you've done outside of this article or this, um, you know, experience with going into the, um, into, to go into this presentation? Um, is right, there the, something yeah, else? Into the senior living home. Um, Courtney, I have done this with as, um, starting with third graders. I've done it with third graders through seventh graders. And what I've done in each of those situations is I've tried to figure out what the hook is. So for example, what I would do when I would go to the school for the elementary school students, you know, I would talk to the school counselor and I'd say, well, you know, what, what would they really like to learn about lawyers? And um, we did some exercises. I'll give you an example of a couple exercises we did. One of them we did, and maybe you'll remember this, it was about a boy who was almost six years old and he pulled a chair out from an adult as she was about to sit down. And ultimately what wound up happening is a verdict got turned returned as against that child. Now, these third to fifth graders, they were close enough to being six years old. So what I did is I divided the group in half I teamed them up and I said, I'd like you to make a presentation and I'm the judge here as to why you think your client should win and why the other side should lose. And I want you to make it based on what you think is the right, the fair result. 
the just result. Now, before we did the exercise, we talked about what law is and the goals of law, what, what law is supposed to go ahead and achieve. And then I, I turned them loose and we had a mock role play on that. I mean, again, it was, it was about engaging them at their level, okay? I also, as the kids got a little bit older, you know, I had some other exercises. I had, I had exercises, I, I mean, I'll, I'll share one with you. Conflict resolution. I ask them this question. You wear a new jacket to school, and at the end of the day, you find that it's gone. The next day, you see another student wearing it. Now, you have to decide what to do, and I'm going to give you some choices. And I want you to pick the choice that you would make and tell me why you'd make this choice. Your first choice is you go up to the student and you force him to give it back to you. Your second choice is you wait until the student takes it off, and then you take it back. Your third choice is you tell your teacher so that your teacher can check the jacket for identification. And the fourth one is you go up to the student and you try to talk it over. Tell me, what would you do? And that gets the students talking. And what winds up happening is they have disagreements. And I tell them in advance, I'm, I, I tell them in advance, I, I'm not telling you there is a right and a wrong answer. Some answers are better than others, but I want you to justify what, what your choice is. So long answer, short, Courtney, I've enjoyed it with each of the groups that I've talked to because the exercises I come up with are directed towards that particular group. And I really enjoy engaging them. Thank you. Sure. You mentioned in the article that uh, as a trial attorney, I think you mentioned earlier too, that uh, you'd often watch both the witness and the judge, but also the jury to see how they reacted to the evidence that you're presenting. What do you, what can you do during litigation to kind of change your, change your argument if you're finding that the jury is not reacting positively to it? Well, it's not so much changing your argument, Seth, because then it sounds like you're really talking out of both sides of your mouth. And, and then you can confuse the jury. It's like the jury was thinking, are you going down this one road? Now, suddenly, why are you taking a detour? Um, part of it to me is questioning yourself. It's questioning yourself to the extent of how am I presenting this? And is there a more effective way of presenting it? And for example, if I have a number of witnesses lined up and I'm thinking to myself that some of them are going to present better than other witnesses, I'm going to select those witnesses and discard the ones that I still have on the side. I mean, I have to decide at some point, are they absorbing the evidence or are they not absorbing the evidence? And frankly, I mean, some people are poker faced. You're, you're not going to get anything out of them. Other people, you can, I mean, you can actually see them nodding along with you or shaking their heads or occasionally smiling. And you hope that you're interpreting that correctly. So it's, again, it's, it's not a question of changing the direction you're going in. It's a matter of, of changing the presentation that you're making. You mentioned um, that in this time of COVID, you almost prefer the Zoom class when people have their cameras on over the in-person because of the mask. Do you uh, now having, in, in, having taught in, in these modalities, um, do you see a future for online JD programs that are taught over Zoom? Well, let me back up and, and, and uh, maybe, uh, maybe I misstated this. Um, I prefer having people in class. 
even with a mask on. I, I like seeing other human beings close by. Okay. It's kind of a joke at the law school. Now I'm one of the few teachers who comes in and teaches from the classroom, even though everybody is online. And I teach from the podium because it makes it more real to me. And when, when I come into the, into the building, there are very few people. And sometimes you kind of feel like Robinson Crusoe on this island. It's like, oh, you're Friday, right? You know, um, it's, it's like, oh, another human being. I didn't realize there are other people around this place. So I, I'd much rather have people in front of me. And I'll, I'll, I'll deal with the masks that are on. It's still, to me, a better, a friendlier environment. The, the advantage of online, obviously, is to be able to see people. But honestly, Tony, I, I'm, I'll be candid about it. I, I'm concerned for our students. I'm concerned for our students because many of them are in disparate situations. Some of them have better technology than others. Some of them have more disturbances than others. Some of them have different problems they have to take care of around their own houses. So I think it's much better and much more supportive if we can actually have people in the building itself. So to answer the question you're saying in terms of an online JD education, um, I think there will be more in that direction. And I think there'll be more in that direction because of the fact that um, it can be less expensive certainly less expensive than having to move to the site itself. I mean, I have, I have a student this semester who is 13 time zones away. So when I'm teaching at 11 o'clock in the morning, it's midnight where he is. And, and son of a gun, he's got another class after that. So, you know, people obviously change their lifestyles for that purpose, but they, they opt into that and, I, I see this, I, I see more and more of a trend going in that direction. I, um, I hope we're still able to maintain the human connection. Anyone else have questions? Those were the only ones I prepared. Um, again, I'm, I'm glad to answer whatever's on your mind, whether, whether it's impromptu or not. You didn't have to give me questions in advance. So, you know, it's, it's like in class, right? I, I, don't, I, I never know what you're going to ask. It's, it's not scripted. I have a question about um, keeping up with the Socratic method over Zoom. Um, I know a lot of teachers uh, prefer to teach with that method and it makes sense. Um, in what ways going online have you found either to try to maintain that or alternatives um, to keep up that kind of conversational uh, teaching style? Um, what I've told people in the two classes I'm teaching this semester is that um, my, my goal is, other than them learning the materials, my goal is to keep them engaged in the discussion throughout the class. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to do it in a harsh type of way, but I think it's important for everyone to stay tuned during class. I think that um, as much as we can, given our circumstances, as much as we possibly can, we have to maintain some type of normalcy. And the normalcy is through the learning process itself. So I have a goal in every class to get around the classroom, that everyone's voice is heard at some point during the class itself. Uh, this semester, I have two courses. One of them, well, they both have about 20 students. So during the 75-minute class, I make sure everyone's voice is heard. And some people volunteer. Other people, I volunteer. 
but it's 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 a matter of keeping it as keeping it as real as possible given the circumstances i think we'd be letting you down frankly if we didn't do that thank you so do you want to do you want to answer the question about what you do about that coach yeah let's go go around the panel and start with joanne um, if you want to if you want to i'll repeat the choices to you well i i remember which one i would choose um i don't remember the other ones but i remember thinking about it when you said it I would talk to the kid because you never know what that kid is going through. What if that kid needed it more? What if they didn't have a winter coat and you have one at home and you know, that was just a new one. Why would you like, what if that kid doesn't have the money? So talk to them, talk out the circumstances and stuff. Why'd you take it? That's what I would do. Okay. So basically what you're trying to do is uh, turn down the volume. Yeah, nodding doesn't work for a podcast. Oh, oh, oh right. Sorry. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Make, yeah I, I not make to too much of a fuss. This. Yes, right. Okay, got it. Yeah. How, how about the rest of you? See, this is what happens in the classroom. This is why I have to call on people, right? You know, for, um, I, I, I think realistically, I would probably just take it back when the kid took it off um with the objective of minimizing the opportunity for for direct conflict um it's generally not worth it to get into a fist fight over a coat and i think that's a reasonable possibility if you're thinking about school age boys you know occurring so con conflict adverse i get that and you know honestly tony the, the reason i present this question to them and again, I tell them that it's not like there's one right answer, is I want them to, well, think creatively is one thing, but also think about ways to work things out that don't have to be violent. It's kind of like a, I guess I'll call it an alternative dispute resolution. Uh, I was a snitch when I was a little kid, so I would go right to the teacher. Um, you, yeah. realize this is, you realize this is being recorded. I'm not a snitch now, but I was when I was little. I'm, I'm definitely still an arc. I, I would have found some form of identifying feature on that coat to make sure it was mine, but without a doubt, I would go to the teacher and have the, you know, rule of the <laughs> rule of the teacher behind me in supporting me getting that coat back. Well, basically the force of law. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So three, three different answers so far. Seth, what about you? I think I'd probably talk to him first and then see how that went and you know interesting you say that because you say see how it went it, you're not discarding the other possible choices right yeah it's probably air your grievances and see yeah and then then see which which direction you got to move in and then i want to change my answer and agree with seth because if i talk to him in his circumstances or just that he wanted it more um then I would probably go to the teacher. Just wanted to change it up a little bit. And, and Joanne, it's interesting you do that because see what happens, what happened in the classroom as we went through this is that the students did talk to each other more so than to me. And what they actually became, you probably know where I'm going with this. 
they actually became a little bit of a jury. They influenced each other. And ultimately what wound up happening is they came to, I didn't, I'm not calling it a verdict, but they came to a consensus as to what they really thought would be the best way to resolve this. What about you, Shanley? I probably would confront the person um, and take my coat back. Okay. Is, is that the MBA speaking? No, it's probably the school of hard knocks that I grew up in. <laughs> okay. Now, one of, one of my sisters always uses the comment that you are what you ate yesterday. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you're influenced by your background. I mean, we all are. Why yesterday? So, well, it just when she says yesterday, Joanne, she's using that as a figure of speech. What she really means is she's influenced by her past. I got that. I thought it was just funny, the what you ate yesterday. Yeah, and Joanne, what, what, what she follows up by saying, she's kind of a character. She follows up by saying, I am I am what I what I was yesterday. I, I am what I ate yesterday. I mean, I say yesterday I ate really greasy food. So I guess I'm really greasy and sleazy. And on that note, um, we're just about out of time. Thanks again to our panel, uh, Seth, Courtney, Nicole, Joanne, Shanley, and of course our guest, uh, Professor McGill. Reminder, you can find a link to the article discussed by going to larvsquared.com and looking at the episode notes. Leave us a verdict on what you'd like us to talk about next by twittering suggestions to at squared law please like follow subscribe or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast if you're a law student at any school and would like to be on a panel feel free to get in touch with us using any uh, method audio post-processing by Mohammed salim and podcast adjourned <laughs>